Kelly Brogan is a holistic psychiatrist, an embodied woman, a best-selling author, and in this podcast, we talk about all things related to health, sexuality, and human thriving in general. It was a beautiful, wide-ranging conversation, so enjoy this podcast with Kelly Brogan, MD. Before we get into our ads, I want to tell you guys, Fit for Service is throwing a festival. It has all the musicians, my favorite musicians on the planet, really, the Glitch Mob, Dr. Fresh, Troy Boy. I mean, if you can't dance and you don't want to dance when you hear them come on, you're crazy. They're the best. We have Emancipator, Dirt Wire, Lucky Luke, Satsong. There's so many different incredible people who are going to be there. I mean, I, the list goes on. I encourage you guys to check it out. Go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K. And it's called Arcadia because Arcadia symbolizes a return to the Edenic state, the second innocence, a place where we're in harmony with ourselves, with each other, and with nature. And the guiding principle of this festival goes beyond the leave no trace ideology. We're trying to leave it better than we found it. Leave the town of Alpine better than we found it. Leave the land that we're on better than we found it. Leave ourselves better than we arrived and leave each other better than when we came. There's amazing speakers, Matthias Stefano, Charles Eisenstein, Zach Bush, Blue. Many of the podcast guests who you've heard are going to be there live. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event that if I wasn't throwing it, I would be the first to sign up and be a part of it because it's everything that I would want. Of course, the place is going to be beautiful, lakes and mountains. It's going to be a really, really special experience, and I can't wait to meet you guys there. So check it out. Go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K, and you can check out if it vibes with you. And if so, I will see you at Arcadia. And now a quick word from our sponsors. First up, we have NutriSense. Now, one of the most important levers to pay attention to is your metabolic health. And your metabolic health has a lot to do with your blood glucose. When you're on this constant roller coaster of taking in a bunch of sugar and then dumping a bunch of insulin to actually distribute the sugar, you can run into a lot of problems, a lot of problems that concern weight management, but just problems that concern fatigue and overall performance. But the thing is, you don't always know what type of foods or what your dietary practices are that are affecting your blood glucose levels. So a continuous glucose monitor is an amazing solution. And the people at NutriSense really created the optimal solution for helping you monitor this in a continuous way. So you really know, all right, I ate this at this time, and now this correlated to this blood glucose level, and this is what it was doing on the inside. It's an ability to actually peer into our body in a way that we've never been able to do before. And putting one of these things on is painless. I've seen so many of my buddies with them on from Ben Greenfield and Kyle Kingsbury. So many people who really take health and performance and optimization incredibly seriously use a continuous glucose monitor. And there's none out there that I've seen better than the ones provided by NutriSense. So if you go to NutriSense.io slash Aubrey, you'll get $30 off any subscription to a continuous glucose monitor program. So once again, go to NutriSense, N-U-T-R-I-S-E-N-S-E dot I-O slash Aubrey for $30 off a subscription to a CGM program. And lastly, we have on it This podcast, like every other one, whether I mention it or not, is brought to you by Onnit Alpha Brain Black Label. 
Now, it's brought to you by Onnit Alpha Brain Black Label because I take it every single time I do a podcast. I don't miss a podcast without taking Black Label. Now, it used to be Alpha Brain back in the day, but since Black Label came on the market, it just provides this crystalline focus where I'm able to drop in, really connect with the guests, have access to information, stories, words. It creates this kind of flow state. And whether I'm writing or podcasting or reading, taking notes, whatever I'm doing, Alpha Brain Black Label is my ride or die homie. So click the link on the screen if you're interested in checking it out or go to onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off Alpha Brain Black Label and all other Onnit supplements and products. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Kelly Brogan. Kelly, it's good to have you here. It's great to be here. Yeah. So an interesting thing that I like to do is we see a lot of the challenges in medicine and health and our psychological processes. And we can point at all these individuals, and I'm sure we'll, we'll burrow down into those. But if you had to gather up all of that information that you've accumulated and become aware of, and you're working with patients, your own personal journey, and say like, all right, what is the meta crisis of health that we're experiencing right now? Like, what is the, what is the ultimate meta crisis? What's that thing? that's keeping us from seeing the truth in all of these different avenues? Mm, that's a beautiful question. What comes to me is that it's a lack of initiation to one's own power, right? So obviously mm -hmm. culturally, we don't have a means of transmitting any sort of elder wisdom to the adolescent, which is probably when it would have occurred um, traditionally, right? To come into contact with the illusory limitations, with the fear of death, to surpass and transcend and move through that into an expanded sense of self and ultimately a connection to the divine. That's mm. what initiation could provide, right? And because we don't experience that, we don't cross over a threshold, we carry all of our child psychology into our adulthood and we end up just being kids, you know, running around in our trauma bodies with adult clothing on, trying over and over and over again to make something work that by its very nature cannot work. You mm. know, I've called it like buying eggs from the hardware store when we insist that we can find love in a place where it is simply not available. That is one definition of, of suffering. So I think that as children, we are societally, familially um, enculturated to come into great conflict and enduring conflict with our animal beingness. Mm and our human feelingness, if you will. And so we develop this like psychological infrastructure that says what I am, my very nature is wrong. It's bad. I am fundamentally rejection worthy. I am fundamentally broken. And so the curation begins and that curation ultimately results in our personality and our defensive structure. And at some point, what I initially observed in my practice was like in your 30s or 40s, but now I think it's maybe like creeping earlier. I don't know. Collectively, there is a recognition that the strategy to procure love and connection and approval, it's like not really working. And mm -hmm. even the most basic sense of okayness is not available. And that's when the mask like starts to slip 
and you have right. two options. You can tape it on tighter, you know, and just keep on keeping on, or you can say yes to the initiation. And it tends to be rather self-led at this point and ultimately is a, a process of coming into greater connection with that feeling felt human experience and with what it is to to simply be you yeah. know rather than constantly do and try to get that a plus on on life that ultimately has failed to deliver the experience that we were hoping for one of the things that i was talking to matthias de stefano's actually here in the house now and he was we had a long conversation about the importance of remembering yeah. ourself like if yeah. we think of our members you know like their arms our legs and there's a remembering yeah. of who what we actually are in its totality not the reductionist sense that the medical biology books will will show us but a cohesive remembering where all of the pieces are attached our energy body our emotional body our mental body our physical body our spiritual body all of these things are inextricably woven and to have a remembering of ourself then can help guide us to what we actually need because we all need help we need different practices we need different supplements sometimes we need the drugs mm. sometimes we just do you know some staph infection or mm. something some result of an environment that's creating something that's difficult for us to manage on our own sure like blessings and gratitude mm. that we have these things but it must first come with a remembering of self so we know how to choose from the various options and not be manipulated into that choice by the profit-driven medical industrial complex which of course is cannot be ignored that 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 energy is there and self-perpetuating an energy of okay well we have a solution and it costs this much and you can bill your insurance for this and all of that so there is some pressure on the other side but there's also a great awakening of these initiatory practices that help us remember like remember who we are and that seems i totally agree with you that seems like step one like let's remember and then step two let's look at all the solutions because there's a lot of different options that you can start to choose from there yeah. There's a, a Greek word, I don't speak Greek, but the word is anamnesia. And my understanding is that it means to remember something once known. And it arises from within. And I think, you know, those of us who've had that experience, it's this ineffable feeling of like expansive delight. Like, oh, of course, this yeah. is how it is, you know, yeah. of course. How could I have been? so asleep and then you feel almost compassion for the version of you that didn't quite remember to the extent you know that, deep that we grief. do now yeah i mean in these moments of anamnesia that i've experienced yeah. it's both the exuberance of holy yeah. shit this is good and then looking back like oh man yeah i lived a whole beautiful life without this knowledge and yeah. if i would have just remembered this everything would have been that much sweeter yeah. every kiss would have been sweeter every time i made love would have been more rich and full of eros every 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 experience of my life could have been more enlivened you know and and there's a grieving of that and i think that's one of the th reasons that keeps people from these experiences of transcendence because you really have to 
look back and say like all right like it could have been a lot different and that's okay i accept that's just a memory in the past what about from now forward but we get stuck in the self-judgment of i should have done something different it could have been a different way and it's hard for people to just be like okay i didn't know now we go forward and i think that if we can extrapolate this concept of choice as the ultimate human superpower that is ever present and we can apply it even to those experiences of suffering that's where i personally can get myself into controversial waters and it is my belief system that we always have agency and that choice is always available to us and that on some level we actually want to be having the experiences of struggle and suffering that we are having Mm. we semi-consciously sometimes subconsciously choose them why there's a great wisdom in this right it's not because we were stupid and asleep and just didn't know better and wanted to forestall having like this more extraordinary embodied experience it could be because that is the wisdom of our very embodiment that we Mm. are offered these patterned experiences of that little rumble of feeling and we can take it to its completion or we can suppress and stifle it again because i would argue that anytime we engage in addiction and addiction can be broadly defined as anything that stabilizes fulfills or otherwise like meets a need right there doesn't need to be this pathological um you know negative veil over it it can simply be something that works because mm-hmm. i have found in in my patients that their addictions whether you know conventional addiction substances or otherwise or work or you know, sex or otherwise um, relating even to the pharmaceutical establishment through an addictive model, it works. It works until it doesn't. And so there is some sort of meeting of the needs through these indirect, semi or unconscious ways that then becomes more conscious and intentional. And that transition, that contrast is so much what we came here for, mm. you know, to, to know what it is to engage in that patterned experience of just touching the wound, like just touching the hurt, like just feeling a little bit of the, the grief or the shame or the rage, like peeking out and then recognizing that it's not time for its completion yet. It'll spiral around yet again in the future. And we'll have that opportunity to let it be, let it alchemize and to move through this body. But I've found that, you know, and a lot of somatic experiencing speaks to this, like your nervous system has to be healed, stabilized, integrated to a certain extent for you to literally be able to capacitate an emotion, literally, for you to not die because of it the way that you would have as a child, as a child, for you to experience these states of terror um, that a company disconnection is an existential threat. I mean, you literally, as an infant or child in that kind of danger, that's, that's been coupled with the experience of, of death. Mm -hmm. And so when we carry that, you know, sort of psychic structure for these feeling states into our adult life, um, of course we would avoid it. I mean, I could say that my entire career in activism history was predicated on an avoidance of some of my deepest fears, including that men can kill me, you know? Mm. Um, And imagining that to turn towards that fear, to explore it, to really allow it to speak its story, um, 
I wasn't ready, even physically, to hold that experience in my body. And I certainly wasn't ready earlier in my life to um, truly inhabit like bodily what it is to have others, especially others that I care deeply about, think that I am bad and wrong, you know? Right. That would have killed me. It would have felt at least or potentially even really killed me. So, you know, to- Well, to, the me yeah. that is identified in the identity yes. construct. Yes. And which must die many, many deaths. Right. In our right. life of growth and evolution. Right, that conflict between, you know, this ego structure and the beingness, the feelingness mm. that is native to us. Like, what a rift. Like, how do we exist with these fragments, like in this huge bag we're carrying around and curating, like, which parts we imagine somebody might love us for? I mean, it's exhausting. It's totally exhausting. And that's why, you know, so much of what we call depression or anxiety I mean, certainly I was taught the biochemical model of something is wrong with your your brain. Um, and there's a very different perspective, which is that this is the calling forth of your soul's integration into your feeling body. And in psychiatry, at least the way I was trained, there's no role for the question, why? Like, why is this yeah, an we're experience in, we're in a, we're in a broken machine hypothesis you know, which is this, again, this reductionist idea, separatist reductionist idea of the body in isolation from the field and isolation from the unseen aspects of right. us and the unseen choices. I think that was a very, I don't want to just gloss over that, that there's a deep reverence that we can all have that accompanies compassion. Cause sometimes compassion can feel like pity Yeah, where it's like, Oh, poor person, they're yeah. suffering, but you can, have that and so it's a yes and it's like yeah yeah like be with them in their suffering like yes. understand and that's also one of the great ways to help somebody out of their suffering it's not to tell them a bunch of fancy things it's like no i'll go in there with you like you're in hell let me go into hell with yes. you and oh. guess what when i'm in hell with you it's not no longer hell anymore because hell is a place of isolation so there's that one aspect of it that's like let me get in there but then there's also the the shadow aspect of that which is pity which creates puts you in a place mm -hmm. above where they're going and and pitying them rather than honoring them as wow that's a brave soul look at the brave soul who's choosing that path of separation so that they have the opportunity to find their way back and guide others back yes right and it's not it's not like bypassing their experience their experience is real as hell but it's saying like just maybe this is their choice and let me go in there and feel it with them to support them not try to change them just to know that i'm there with you and also let me honor you let me honor you for this for this choice that that your soul is making to endure this weight to feel this burden you know and that changes things really radically than the, the kind of pity model and the false compassion yep. which is which is keeping you separate and keeping you better than another person, which is a slippery, dangerous little path for the ego to go down. I totally agree. And and I've said it before, I'll say it again, that I think that victim consciousness is the only human pathology. It is the root of what we call evil and hurt and suffering. And often it is cloaked. It's hiding in these places that we wouldn't suspect it exists, right? So obviously if you're in your victim consciousness, you're saying things like, poor me, why me, no fair, and you're fighting with reality as it's being presented to you, right? And there's a villain that you're mm -hmm. oriented towards. There's it, there's some 
external source of power that is responsible for your suffering. A victim requires an oppressor. Exactly. But what I've been interested in in my own process is to learn more about this other angle of the triangle, which is the, this is the Cartman triangle, uh, which is the rescuer, right? And I would argue that most people in our position and, and many who call themselves healers or facilitators or philanthropists or otherwise, who are consciously seeking to better humanity and help others and support others, are ultimately not only doing so for their own gain, which I actually don't think is problematic. I'm in the, you know, there's um, a guy named Bill Harris who who wrote a book called Sacred Selfishness. So I'm in the mm-hmm. camp that individuation requires a self-orientation, self-discovery, and self-knowing that is foundational to any capacity to offer compassion to another or to even function harmoniously in, in a collective dynamic. Um, but not only is it fundamentally meeting my own needs if I am helping another, so I better get acquainted with my own needs so that those are conscious, but that there is a subtle reification of exactly what you're describing, which is itself a disempowered model. It's the victim model because I'm saying, I have to help Mm, you. mm -hmm, You -hmm. couldn't otherwise figure this out. Without me, you couldn't do this. And even though it appears like, you know, I'm just opening my arms to your struggle, what if there was some third path, fifth path, you know, there was some way that that individual would have resolved the tension of the conflict within them without your meddling, you know, almost like from an anthropological perspective, like, could you just watch and support and be co-present rather than intervening? What if they would have come into contact with their agency in a way that now is impossible because you swooped in to save them? And how can you be so sure? This was a big one for me in my activism, especially, you know, imagining that I know what's best for children, right? Um, and what should happen and should happen, shouldn't happen to them with regard well, to- Well, you might know a few things about that. <laughs> I, I certainly still think I do. Maybe not 72 injections, I don't know. <laughs> I, maybe maybe not. Thing. I don't maybe, know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, How maybe. do I know? I don't know. What maybe, a child's maybe journey you is. do know. I don't know. but I'd like to think I do, but I came <laughs> to the point where I, I can't be so sure. Like I yeah. cannot be so sure what anyone else needs. And when I am in that energy well, of let me tell you imagining Kelly. that I know. Yeah. Science is real <laughs> and trust the science. I so know. I don't know what kind of blasphemy you're talking <laughs> because it's real and it's fixed and it's always the same and it's known. I know. For everybody. Well, I was taking that science down the other com- path. We're a computer, and and, and the program works every time on the MacBook operating system of follow the orders. Yeah, I know. So I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I know. <laughs> I don't either. I stopped knowing what I was talking about a little while ago. <laughs> but yeah, no. I mean, it's it's really not for me to know because not that I couldn't know better, but if I think that I do then I am, what am I trying to do? I am trying to alleviate my own discomfort with someone else's, even this anonymous victim's suffering. So is there another way for me to address or interact with my own discomfort without leveraging control over someone else's experience, even if they're colluding with me in that, you know, sort of um, disempowerment? Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's how I've come to see it. The the deep embodied lessons from facilitating different ceremonies breathwork being one of the ceremonies that i facilitate you participated Mm -hmm. in one of those in one of those experiences 
the the way in which you facilitate that in its highest in its highest level is not to try and like if someone's yelling or emoting anger you don't go and try to be like it's okay it's okay right. you know like you shouldn't be feeling which is subtly this condescension of you shouldn't be feeling this let me show you exactly. that it's all good or let me let me tell you why you shouldn't be angry let me tell you that you know forgive you just time to forgive like you know the way you facilitate and it's the same in a bufo ceremony a five meo ceremony the way you facilitate of the highest accord is you just drop in there with them and if they're if they're feeling rage like you allow yourself to feel rage mm. so that they know that you feel what they feel mm. and so if they're yelling you yell if they're crying mm. you cry and it's not that and it comes naturally it's not like you try to do it it's just like let's just go in here together and that's the only thing that's the only thing i'm going to do is i'm just going to let you know and that's mostly what i say it's just i know i know mm-hmm. i know i know because we all of this human experience is available to us so if we don't recognize that whatever somebody else is feeling is also in us we're completely full of shit yes because we have that too yeah maybe the specific things that triggered it this stepdad did this or this you know whatever like that's specific i get it and and honor that there's a specific unique thing that happened but the universal feeling that came from it the trauma we all have access to it so it's just i know i know and i'll feel it with you and that that's the only thing that i've ever seen that actually accelerates the process of healing because then people are just not alone and that's the only thing that i think human beings were definitely not meant to do this alone yeah we were not meant to do the, anything in isolation. Like that's not how we're designed. So when you step into that role, that's like that's the role where you're not being rescuer as separate than, which is problematic, as yeah. you said. That subtle condescension, all of your own feelings of validation for look what I did and mm-hmm. blah blah blah. And it doesn't mean that you're free from that trap because you can do that really well, dive in and grieve with someone's grief and then you can pop right out and be like, man, aren't I good? I'm fucking, I nailed that one. I'm a dove. Tip at the top. Everybody else doing it shitty, you know? I know what the fuck to do. So ego is slippery as hell. And always, you always have to kind of keep one little side eye on it. Like, I see you, buddy. I see you popping your head up. But yeah, I 100% agree with you that like the way the way to heal is to just is just step in on the inside just for a moment just like step in on the inside it's the medicine that works the best for me i mean it's not somebody if i'm feeling some it's not somebody giving me a bunch of advice advice no it's just like yeah. no i i feel i feel what you're feeling and i'll but just it's feel even it more you. that you're doing because you're offering what i think is the ultimate balm which is approval right Mm. you're actually it's not just acceptance or tolerance or even just co-presence you're actually offering when you say i know you are saying communicating and transmitting what you are in this moment makes sense yeah what you are is something that needs to be this way yeah you know it's almost like and i'm so glad it is this way is is implicit and what that undoes relative to our childhood experiences of having our being states and our feeling states um, in conflict with our connection to our caregivers and a sense of safety is extraordinary. I mean, it really just even one of those experiences of approval from somebody 
intimate, you know, to your emotional sharing and experience or something that you can offer yourself. You know, I had an experience with my girls recently. Um, I have two daughters, um, 13 and 10. And in some reparenting work I've been doing on my own, I thought, you know, there are two questions that I wish like had been posited, you know, at some point earlier than my 40s. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to ask my my kids these questions. And one was, um, tell me about an experience that you had of me that hurt you and that when you think about it, you still feel hurt now, you know, tell me about that. And the other was, you know, what do you need from me now that you're not getting? And my kids are super chill and they're so lovely and like not a source of a lot of my triggering at all. Um, And I was not prepared for what it felt like to get this feedback from them. It was so devastating, so devastating. Partly because it exposed my secret uh, rescuer, right? Because I, you know, even before I was into like sovereignty oriented stuff, I was always like a libertarian and always very sort of like live and let live kind of parenting model. And I certainly thought that I had broken a lot of cycles, you know, in my lineage and that my kids were pretty, pretty free, you know, to be who they needed to be. And I didn't realize that when I got the feedback that particularly around like a very dramatic shift in one of my many rebirth processes, like, I don't know, four or five years ago, my daughter gave me the feedback that she saw me as the villain, right? In that memory that she had. Meanwhile, in my story, I'm like the hero. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The villain is like other folks in my family of origin or whatever. And when she gave me that feedback, it smoked out my need for her to see me in a certain way in order for me to experience myself Mm -hmm. in a certain way. And in psychological terms, that's called a narcissistic extension. When you use your children to bolster your sense of self-worth, and I had no idea I was doing that until I got this feedback that was at odds with my reality. And I like cried. And I, I recognized that I had this secret agenda to like heal my lineage, you know, and that my kids needed to have this like deeply embodied spiritual experience of their femininity. And that if that didn't happen, somehow that failure would reflect on me personally. Mm -hmm. Like none of this was conscious. And so I went through this whole experience of like what it is to fail around what I thought I came here for, like Mm -hmm. literally as a woman. And then in that moment, I recognized, well, in one of the moments of, of crying about this, I recognized like, oh my God, Kelly, this is actually the opportunity. Like it's right here. Here is the opportunity. It's happening right now. Yeah. For me to turn towards her, knowing that she has a totally different experience than mine, and to simply visit with her experience and approve of it. Because of course, I want her to know my experience, right? right? Well, here's my reasoning. Here's what you don't understand, silly mm-hmm. child. Like, here's where you've gotten it wrong. And and once I clear this up for you, then you'll see me differently and you'll see me the way that I want you to see me and I will feel loved and mm-hmm. approved of myself, except <laughs> now I'm the adult and she's the child. And I have, I had this like golden opportunity. And because I recognize that and could offer myself that framework, I was able to sit there and like cross the bridge to her reality, which was fundamentally condemning, it's it felt like 
of mine and simply be with her. And if it's taken all of this inner work for me to feel ready, even on a nervous system level, to hold the feeling of that disapproval from somebody I care so deeply about in my body, like no wonder this is not available to many of us, right? right. And no wonder we're perpetuating that experience of, you know, what's referred to as an enmeshment trauma, like where we need to share a reality in order to feel safe because that's how it was as kids, you know? And I know I have the program, especially with men like that, if I can get you to see, if you don't like what I did or who I am or whatever, or you're disapproving or disappointed, if I can get you to understand, then I'll get what I want, which is your approval, your love, your connection or whatever. And so I've made an entire, you know, vocation out of making sure that it's clear that what I think is valid, right? Like I can show, I can show hundreds of references for why I'm right about what I feel and think. But fundamentally, when we need to defend ourselves, our reality, our feeling state, our experience, it's like you abandon the post of your heart and you're running into somebody else's terrain to make the case mm -hmm. for why your heart is true. And you don't have to do that, right? That self-betrayal will then ultimately be reflected back as a betrayal in another, yeah, right? Because I could have experienced my daughter as like betraying me in that moment. And because I stayed with my child self who was having her tantrum and I stayed loyal to her, not, you know, abandoning her to prove to my daughter that I was right about my reality. It's not necessary when you're in a self-allegiance, when you're in this commitment to stay with your own experience and not needing to recruit validation and approval from the outside. Mm -hmm. Then we paradoxically can offer approval to others, right. which is itself like, it, 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 it ends right there. You know, mm -hmm. when I can say to you like, wow, really genuinely, makes sense you know that you would feel that way it is it is something of a paradox in that <clears throat> we must be able to be fully self-sovereign yes and we can never be also like we will right. always be influenced and we will always have some level of enmeshment with other people and it's important it's a part of our development to actually have an alternate perspective that we can offer. Now, hopefully we find people who around us who are aware that they are have just a perspective and then that perspective isn't necessarily the truth. And, and this is like, I, I recently did a, a practice called circling, which you might be familiar with. I don't know mm -hmm. if you are or not, but the beauty of it is it's an interpersonal communication technique and the idea is to name that everything that you are experiencing of another person is either your feeling or it's your imagination mm -hmm. about, about what that thing is. So it takes radical ownership of your experience, which then lowers everybody else's defenses. Because if you even say something like, you know, what I'm sensing or what I'm seeing in you, you know, you're saying like, you're telling somebody that. About their inner world. Yeah, but so in the language is very specific in mm. the circling, which is what I'm imagining mm. is, what I'm imagining is, what I feel is, my feeling, not what I feel about you, but what I feel in my body is, or what I notice, I noticed your hands doing this. So, so you'd say, I notice, 
I feel, and then I, I imagine, I imagine this. And then it allows people to have like this interesting way that they can receive something and and then try it on for themselves. But it's the absolute removal of the judgment, which is also, you know, that's another thing that, that you were talking about. It's like, if you just remove the projection of telling somebody what it is, they don't have to defend it because they don't feel judged. They may still want to judge themselves, but there's just a nice, easy, easy way to do that. And so I think surrounding yourself with people who have some of this information, some of this technology, some of this understanding, and like a, are very grounded themselves is incredibly supportive. But to get into that place where you can be that incredibly supportive, you have to also become self-sovereign. And then it becomes like a reinforcing circle. So it's interesting. I, I do feel like sometimes the self-help kind of community, the do the work community, you know, it's so focused on self-love, 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 self-sovereignty, self-soothing, self-parenting, self. And I get it. Like, yeah, yes, and if you can get, if you can do that with a community, it's just an accelerant. But if it's the wrong community, it'll actually repattern the wounds and the trauma. Right. So it's like, I think it's important to recognize that it's not just all about your self-love practice. Like it can be really helpful to have somebody who loves you unconditionally. Like that's really helpful. <laughs> you know, like, I'm <laughs> sorry. Nice. I'm sorry. It just is. <laughs> You know, like you do something shitty and you're judging yourself and that person, that person just looks at you like, you know, you, you're still right on top. You know, I'm, I was so lucky that my mom was like that. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom, an example, she always loved me with that kind of unconditional, mm -hmm. unconditional way. And it didn't mean that my own self-love was perfect because my dad was a different, right. slightly different story. But it, I had, I had a good, I had a good model of both, but just for an example, someone asked my mom recently, like, aren't you so proud of Aubrey? Well, I've accomplished some things. I wrote a book. I had a company and whatever. And uh, she looked at him and was like, what, what do you mean? I've always been proud mm -hmm. of Aubrey. Like all of this shit he does, like, I don't care. Like, I'm proud of Aubrey because he's Aubrey. You know, and like that love super helpful and then and so i can always go back to my mom to help with that and i've also had to do a ton tons of the self-work to get my own self-love practice and my own self-talk in a way i mean i'll spend still i'll spend in different meditations and ceremonies and journeys i'll spend five whole minutes just telling myself authentically not like a mantra that i'm like zoned out but like you're doing good, Aubrey. Mm. You're doing good. Like, good job, buddy. Good job. For as long as it takes for me to actually like feel it. Because that that voice of self-judgment is so strong. So it's like it's a it's a it's kind of this both and thing. We're like, we gotta handle our own, we gotta handle our own shit, take responsibility for that, and then ideally surround ourselves with a community that can help support that too. Right. I agree that relationally we have the opportunity to accelerate the process of like personal integration and self discovery that it's not available um, in, you know, a silo. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I would say that, you know, I always say like enter through the upset, right? So you look at your resentments, you look at your disappointments, um, you look at the ways that somebody, you know, kind of like rubs you wrong. And there you have like your perfect spiritual practice to reclaim that disavowed and projected part, right? So when you are in that kind of like self-soothing, connecting to that part of you that innocently experiences your own goodness and rightness and um, like inherent value, there is this other part, you know, call it your inner critic or mm. whatever, saboteur or whatever you want to call it, that is just as much a part of you, just as valid, like just as um deeply intrinsic a component of your heart as that more pure field of emotional like you know innocence and that relationship to the inner critic i think is one of the most important aspects of shadow work it's it's to understand that that you know parental interject so that voice that got sort of like uh, became a part of us for our own survival so that we could mm -hmm. anticipate disappointment um, that others might experience um, so that we could anticipate rejection so that we could be prepared emotionally to mitigate like this flood of negative feelings that could come if somebody doesn't like who we are or disapproves of how we um, have chosen to behave, you know, to develop a relationship to that part, like literally dialogue, conversation, um, intimacy with that part and what is that part trying what's its role like what is it trying to protect you from experiencing um who's beneath that part how do the other parts feel yeah. um about that that part is is very possible when you're in relationship in friendship in community dealing with your family of origin because you get to see all of the ways that you need somebody else to be wrong and you need to be right in order for your feelings to be valid but that's not true and that's why the the most difficult practice I've been engaging in is how can I exercise my power of choice such that I do not need someone else to be bad or wrong in order for that not to work for me. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for me because again, I have like this, like very, this litigator inside me that's like, well, here's all the reasons, you yeah, know, sure. why you're wrong. You need to understand that you're wrong and why I'm leaving. You need to know that too. And you know, why this isn't working for me. And all of the reasons are again like that self-invalidating practice where it can simply be the case to opt out of the victim triangle by saying like, Th this doesn't work for me. It's my favorite phrase because there's no further discussion. There's no further justification. There's just an acknowledgement that the resonance that would feel harmonious, that would nurture, that would fulfill is not present. And that doesn't make one of us wrong. Is there, I'm curious, because I've been deeply connecting to reclamation of our sacred want, that yes, it's okay it. to want. Yes. It's okay to want. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. <laughs> right. But we try to pretend like we're, right. we're just agnostic to our wants yes. and, and there's an accord of the universe and we're just in the accord. And I catch myself doing this all the time as well. Instead of like, I have a sensing or I have a knowing or I have a, it's like, and it's like, ah, it's not me. I mean, I, I would want to go out and, you know, take this trip with you, but ugh, I have this feeling that, you know, so it kind of removes me and makes mm. me exculpable mm -mm. 
from claiming my want yes. because I'm afraid that if I actually expose my wants, it will hurt someone's feelings. But there's also like, I'm also at, at the same time, like giving away my own sacred power. And, and it's, it's mildly, a mild act of cowardice to not actually tell the truth. And it might be an act of kindness to them potentially, but it's also a condescending kindness by saying like, ah, my sensing is, or this isn't working in accord with the greater harmony of blah, blah, blah. When it's really like, I, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to. And I, I actually want to go out with this person instead. Right. You know, and like that's, there's this like interesting thing that it's like, as I was, I was writing an email about that today, you know, about a trip that changed, you know, that changed, changed the, the group changed and I wanted it to change. Right. And so I was like watching myself and like watching my language about how I was trying to position this when really like the bottom line was, is like, I want to go, I want to go a different way with this. Yep. You know? And like, that's, that was like a, it was like a moment of courage. I don't even think I actually made it to full courage. I got pretty close, (laughs) you know, but I, I think there's like a beauty for that. And if we all started doing that and then not get so sensitive about it, and or not make a bunch of reasons why or whatever just like it's not what i want right now or it is what i want this is what i want when you think about living in a world where everybody is clear on what they want and expresses it candidly to me that sounds about the safest world we could possibly live in like sign me up because i think there are some i mean not so subtle like Oedipal dynamics at the root of this, right? So in your early life, you felt desire. You felt eros like coursing through your body. Mm. And it was a decentralized, like non-genital sexuality, right? And if you subscribe, you know, I was trained in a very Freudian program um, and later fell in love with, with Jungian psychology. But in, in this model, I do think there's something that's very essential to consider, right? Which is that you felt this desire, this eros, this animation of your body as a child. And where would it be directed, right? At your mom. And, you know, of course, you know, if you were breastfed or if you, you know, were hopefully touched and held and cared for, that's an erotic experience sure. by its very definition. And then there are these triangular dynamics that are enculturated by our you know social structures where there's something actually dangerous so maybe i'm assuming this didn't happen for you but many boys and probably a lot of girls too are shamed for masturbating for example or maybe in some way you were it, it was insinuated that the experience of this you know sexual energy through your body this desire is problematic and dangerous, or maybe even on some deep terrain level, you had this sense that you would be punished, castrated mm. um, for the fuller expression of your desire. So you learn to mitigate it. You learn to split off that animal, um, you know, sexuality from your curated persona. And it didn't go away, right? But somehow we've come to understand, even in your language, that we need to reclaim this experience implies that we've we've learned that it's something that should be hidden or we will be punished for it. Right. Um, and I think it's absolutely the case that desire is 
maybe it's the most powerful force, reality shaping force that there is. And you can't, you know, um, one of the teachers out there, I love Kazia Urbaniak, she talks about how you can't unwant what you want. You know, you want it regardless. And it's either gonna be fulfilled unconsciously. So I've been looking at a lot of my struggles in life through the lens that I looked at my patients. When they would come to the end of our work together, I would often notice like a resistance to like fly the nest, right? Like here they are on the brink of life without doctors ever again, without medications ever again, diagnosis free. And I would feel this like, almost like fomenting of of challenges or sort of like an attachment to the model of that dyad with me. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought you wanted, you wanted this. And somehow I was able to see, well, actually there's a lot that we get out of our struggles. And maybe even you could take it as far as to say that we want the experiences that we have regardless of how they look, right? So that's an unconscious fulfillment of the dynamics that are familiar or maybe even eroticized. You know, Robert Masters uses the term eroticized wound to talk about the ways in which we kind of like fetishize that experience of our own um, punishment in ways, you know, Mm. like I've come to see in my life (laughs) rather inconveniently to like, to own this has been uncomfortable, but how there's something I really like get out of being experiencing myself as like this bad girl who did something wrong, who now needs to be punished. Right. And whether that's through like, sounds hot. Sen- yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel hot in the moment, <laughs> you know, whether that's through like censorship or like, right. you know, some list I'm making or whatever, um, some naughty list, you know, there is, I, I, I always knew on some level, like the poor me angle was not authentic. And there was something I actually liked about it, but I didn't take it so far as to see that there's so many dynamics of struggle in my life where I am being reflected that I've been a bad girl and that I love will be withdrawn or some kind of punishment is coming and that I actually enjoy that mm-hmm. is hard to acknowledge because that means that my whole lifescape is something that I want. I want all of it to be exactly mm-hmm. as it is. And yeah. desire is the driving the driving force. So I either consciously create with owning what it is that I want and recognizing the difficult choices I have to make around you know the reality that I cannot get what I want in a given relationship or in a given dynamic, you know. Um and there's that rupture that often leads us to the brink of this initiation process. I've found that the signature of that process tends to be a willingness to lose something that you thought you might otherwise die without. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, that's been, including like New York City, like leaving New York City was that for me. Like it's an element or aspect of your identity that you imagine will lay you bare, you know, for um, the animals to come devour or whatever. And, And instead what happens is you, you expand into this experience of your selfhood and associated self-concept that wouldn't have been available if you were just trying to arrange all the the furniture on the deck of the Titanic. Right. Yeah. There's, I try to be mindful of the language that we use as well, because oftentimes we'll say, Oh, I have to, I have to do this. I have to, I have to go to work. No, you don't have to go to work. You want to go to work. Like, Oh, I have to do this thing. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to. You want to. No matter what it is. I agree. Like you want to. And like when we start to own that, yeah. 
then all right there but there's other now the only caveat to that is there are other people who want things who are real people and may impinge upon what you want right right? like you can't want somebody else and have that want you know like some shit will happen to you that maybe you don't want you know and that's just life you know a fucking tree could fall and smash your car like a one of those all-state commercials or something you know (laughs) mayhem right some shit some shit can happen got it and you doesn't mean that you wanted that you know just because it happens you could if you had <laughs> it a particular how far you want to if, take if you, it <laughs> depends on your worldview depends yeah, exactly. on your cosmology depends on how much you influence that however i do believe that the tree itself has consciousness and the tree itself in its ultimate yeah. idea has its own consciousness its own its own path everything has every other person has their own sacred choice so it's not just all about us there is a there's a world but most everything that we do is from our want and when we start to realize that we're wanting this and then what do we really want oh i want to go to i have to go to work is i want to go to work i want to go to work because i want the security or i want to feel needed or i want to contribute depending on what your want is for that or i'm afraid of so i want to mitigate the fear of losing this security like you start to go all the way back deeper 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 and you start to realize there's a couple big things i want to be safe mm-hmm. i want to be seen i want to be loved you know i want to like it really gets simple i want to be needed which goes to purpose i want to matter you know i want to want to contribute in a way that matters so you start to reduce and like all right these are we're all having the same the same soup of wants but we've just separated ourselves from it and created a, a loop a web of obligation and and this kind of like exculpability which is really the denial of our power that superpower that you mentioned which is choice i'm choosing this because i want it and then like if we can get back to that there's a lot of latent power that we have to access and loss i don't know maybe that's my bias experience um and perspective is that there is like a sacrifice um, in the truest sense of the word that is that marks the threshold of initiation to that power, right? Because you don't have a choice when you don't know that you have a choice. Mm-hmm. But the moment that you do, there is an invocation of courage um, that is required. And the courage is simply the willingness to walk into that abyss of what it what you imagine is a, a kind of loss and associated grief and pain and mm-hmm. fear that feels immolating that feels like it would destroy you into like you know a billion bits um and you can't take those steps until you're ready i mean i've spent my entire career trying to understand the ingredients of readiness you know, and maybe you have some insight, you know, because I, I haven't been able to figure it out because it's, it always has seemed that the, the patients, for example, that I watched walk into medical history, literally like miracles of remission befalling them. What made them ready the moment they were ready? And then if I had knocked on their door a month before and said, Hey, I think you're, you could maybe, uh, I don't know, come off of five meds you've been on for 25 years and never be a psych patient again, nothing would have happened. Nothing would have alchemized, but there was some ingredient, um, that, that arose from within them that created the conditions that that crucible just came into form. And 
Let's try this on. Yeah. Let's, let's try this on and see how see how we like it as a as a potential answer to that. Yeah. So let's say that our belief system, which is our reality construct, it's actually the world that we live in. Nobody lives in the same world because our world is based on perception. Now that doesn't mean that it's not objective truth or objective mm. things, but our perception of the objective is always subjective. Right. We cannot escape our perspective our subjectivity we just can't escape it so every nobody's watched the same movie nobody knows the right. same person nobody's Seen read the same, the same color, book yeah it's all it's all colored by our perspective right so in this world that we've built that world like all things is part of our identity it becomes like forms part of our identity structure identity is an entity our identity is an entity and that entity wants to survive mm -hmm. and it wants to survive the world that it's in is part of its survival so it has an immune system that defends against and protects against beliefs that could destroy the entity of your identity which is your world and so the idea that you could go into remission requires the willingness for your identity to die that's right if you believe that so it's almost like the permeability it's how if you have a really robust immune system of of keeping out information that would destroy your identity because your identity structure itself is really strong then and it's impermeable you know then that idea won't be able to enter your reality that won't be able to flower and fruit inside your reality so i would say i would propose that the key part of being ready is your willingness to have a malleable your willingness to be malleable with your identity structure or the point at which your identity structure and the world that you've perceived has failed so radically that you are just ready to discard it so that you're able to die and be reborn with a new with a real new identity and it can't be just the mind no it can't be just like ah, i watched a joe dispenza podcast and now i'm fucking ready like your cells have to believe it that's why he's always pushing you to get to that emotional state mm -hmm. that reality the emotions that are translating the information into the body into the felt sense of oh we're already healed it's creating a new reality world that you're in and with that in his teachings which i think are great is if you live in that reality where your cancer is in remission or your whatever your crohn's is healed or whatever the thing is that you live in that world well does it matter whether objectively it happens or not it matters much less mm -hmm. because already your world in your world it's already done and so you get to live that life to a certain degree and that's like that's the ultimate message of it is you get to build your reality and so i think it's a matter of like you said goes back to that first thing what's the initiation that can show you how malleable and how how just your whole world your identity structure is just a construct and so like a new information can come in and like you allow that to come in and then you're in the place where these miracles no longer seem like miracles but you go like oh yeah cool because that's consistent my cells believe that it's possible and my immune system of my belief system is not fighting off this new information anymore and you understand that as an adult you can meet those needs that we were discussing through many different avenues right that it's not only this futile attempt to meet your needs through a system or a relationship that is showing you yeah it's not there you know i always say like going to the allopathic medical system for 
health and wellness is like going to the butcher to learn about veganism. Like it was never on offer through that conventional system that you could have a meaningful experience of your symptoms as messengers, you know, that anything that you're experiencing has any personal uh, import for you. It's all, you know, bad genes, bad timing, you know, just sort of random forces that are befalling you. That system never offered you an experience of even remission. Remission is not you know, true remission of a chronic illness is why they're called chronic illnesses, because they are expected to persist in perpetuity. So if that's not on offer there, and what you actually want to experience is feeling well and whole, why are you going to that system? Why are you persisting there? You're just going to reinforce the belief system that you came with, which is probably one of the reasons why you have are experiencing what you're experiencing. Right. It's but reinforcing you, the reality, the reality world. That and it's in. meeting your needs. So when I am sick, right, chronically sick, what do I get? I get compassion built in to my life from others who pity me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And who offer me that surrogate hit of love. I get to say no without having to actually learn to assert my boundaries and express my desires in this clear and direct way because of course I'm limited by my illness. I can't do that. Mm. I get to say no all the time. I get to experience the validation of this felt sense of wrongness and brokenness that's always lived within me. All of my patients told me the first time they got a diagnosis, they felt like, see, I knew something was wrong with me. And it's like, you know, ends up being like the prison number, you know, that's put on their vest, but it feels in the moment like it's somebody finally seeing their hurt. And when, you know, we end up over-identifying with that wound, with the cancer diagnosis, with the, you know, the mental illness, and then we think that's the problem, it's almost like, you know, imagining that the the fire alarm burned the house down or something. Like it's, it's missing this opportunity to go in through um, the experience. But I I think we have to learn how to meet those needs in a different way. And ultimately, you're the one who has to meet those needs. So you have to recognize, you know, that I I don't know. So I'm a big proponent of of shadow work. And I do think a lot of, you know, spiritual approaches and even health and wellness related approaches are short lived in their yield because you're, you're taking your you know, your inner critic, your protector part from the wheel, and you're putting this like benevolent, you know, faith connected part of you that sees yourself as perfect and whole at the wheel. But fundamentally what happened, you know, to that part of you, it can't be extinguished or just like put back in the closet. So it's like that Walt Whitman quote, like we contain multitudes. And until we can start to see like, oh, I am the self organizing all of these parts and I can identify the different needs of these different parts that otherwise would seem in conflict and play that conflict out in my external reality. It's almost like I'm funding both sides of the war that I think is mm-hmm. is happening on the outside with whatever it is. I mean, often in the victim triangle, as it applies to medicine, you know, it's it's I'm the sick patient who's the victim. I have the rescuer who is, you know, the the priestly doctor. And who is the villain? Like my body, right? Maybe doctors should get maybe doctors should get pointy hats like the Pope <laughs> to really like so the Make white lab the white lab coats are not enough anymore. We got the language, we got too, the costume, yeah, we got the ritual. Go back to Latin for everything. Yes. Go back to Latin and just just try on a pointy hat. 
I know. That way, like really you got it's the faith. Clear. I mean, it is pretty clear, you know, like I don't know, like ritual circumcision is some about as occult as you can get. I mean, it's like in plain sight. Just look at a pap smear and just take it out of context for one moment. Look at that image, like what is going on there? You know, especially as, you know, I was raised almost all of the OBGYNs I was trained by were men, for example. And these are, I believe, as, you know, somebody who was trained in the cult myself, that we go in with the best rescuer intentions. And I actually mm. think I became a doctor and maybe specifically a psychiatrist because I had that little tolerance for human suffering. Like, yeah literally that little tolerance yeah, for it. Yeah. I worked a suicide hotline in college and was like up close with, a, you know, at a, I was at MIT and there were a lot of completed suicides there for various cultural reasons. And I was up close and personal with what that level of despair, um, what that like kind of like swan song of pain could possibly feel like to another person, a bystander. And I could not tolerate it literally in my body. I couldn't mm. hold the feeling. And so, of course, there's this ready-made infrastructure called psychiatry, and I just needed to get those people into that building, you know, and then there's no more bad feeling inside me. And so this is great. And they say there's no more bad feeling inside them. And so what's the problem, right? And of course, I didn't learn about the problem for many, many years um, until I started to see the limitations of the system actually through my own health experience, which is often how that rupture of idealization tends to happen is from our own experience as sure. clinicians. But, you know, we go in with good intentions and we're indoctrinated unknowingly. I mean, if you join a cult, typically it's elective to some extent. You know that you're joining into a field of belief and certain customs and associated rituals and there's exclusivity and there's punishment for leaving and all these things. But in this hidden in plain sight, uh, you know, sort of, inverted world we're living in, we don't know consciously what we're doing. However, we wouldn't be attracted to that. I wouldn't have been attracted to that cult if I didn't hold already the belief system, which is victim consciousness. Mm -hmm. I already um, held that field of belief. And so, of course, it made sense, you know, that I would enter yeah. and resonate. The patholog Patholization, patholization. What, what the fuck? How do you say that word? <laughs> now you're making me wonder. Is it pathologization? Is that a word? Pathologizing. <laughs> pathologization. <laughs> That's definitely not a word. <laughs> it's not a word. I don't know. It sounds weird. <laughs> Should be a word. It's hard to say though. When Maybe one it, pathologizes, how about yeah, that? <laughs> the pathologization <laughs> of everything. This is part of our paradigm. The pathologization mm. of everything. Yeah. Everything. And, and and you mentioned something that was it's interesting like we've pathologized our sexual urges often mm -hmm. and like sex addiction comes up and it's an interesting we and we've touched on sexuality quite a bit and i know i don't know you personally too well but i follow you on instagram and i see you in a place where you're comfortable expressing the embodiment of the reclamation of your sexual energy. Mm -hmm. So I imagine just in our conversation also, this is a keen area of topic and we touched on some of the ways that things can get kind of shameful and twisted and repressed in a lot of those different ways. But it's it seems to me that there's, a, you know, addiction of course is just an attempt to meet a need. Mm -hmm. 
And for many of us, the only time we can enter into that space of Eros, which is, if you follow the old Kabbalist lineage, is the place where you touch the divine, radical presence, interiority, union with another being, the pleasure that actually overwhelms all of your other sensations. And in that moment of rapture, you say, oh God, because it feels like you're back home with the oneness because the pleasure's so high and you're in union. We have all of these things. But then to pathologize that, and say, oh, it's a sex addiction. Maybe, maybe, but it's also like an interesting way to kind of not look at the issue Mm -hmm. and say like, actually, we're all addicted to sex. Like we're all addicted to water and food and breathing and like, but we're just not quite doing it right. So what we're addicted to is what I would say pseudo sex. Yeah. So you can get addicted to the pseudo version of, of the real sex, thing right yeah. like so it's like it's not really what sex should can be which is this beautiful like enlivening healing cleansing purifying enrapturing experience with another person or yourself mm-hmm. you know so but in the pseudo version it's trying to fill some quick need with a quick hit and a little bit of validation and the escapist mentality. So, and the same with all of these other things, drinking alcohol versus being an alcoholic, you know, whatever your relationship is, it's like, there's a higher expression of it, which is like, this is just nice. You know, this, this glass of wine with my friends, it just, it's, this is like, this makes one of the reasons why I love life so much, a good Brunello, you know, on like at sunset, maybe with a cigar, I was doing that all week. And it's just like, man, watching the sun slowly go down behind the pond and like, this is this is heaven. This is like yeah. a big part of it. But you can also slip into the the pseudo version of, of that, which is addiction to tobacco and addiction to alcohol and escapism. And I think we, we're not differentiating well enough and also owning our choices and also owning this. We're just so quick to pathologize every different category of what we have. And it doesn't mean that it's not true that there aren't addictions. I think there are, but it's just, uh, I think there's a way to, instead of continually reinforce this, I'm an addict, it's this, which may be helpful in some regards to, to claim what it is, but just to try and shift things, just shift our perspective a little bit. It just feels like that's, that's important rather than slapping a sticker on ourselves and, and excusing our patterns and then being at war right with being at war with this this apparition that's right. that we've created and then we're in constant conflict with it and we're and we're fighting it and i'm not trying to claim that this is like a solution to replace aa or anything like that but it's just something to like take us take a soft glance at you know, like what are the ways that we're pathologizing things? What are the ways we're at war with ourselves and at war with our conditions rather than like being back inside of our inside of our experience? And what is the driving fear? Like is it fear of death and dying? Um, which sometimes actually is an expressed as a want for that, like as suicidality, I've found that they kind of t- can co-locate. Or is it a fear of being fully alive for the reasons we've discussed that to hold that much energy in your body is has been coupled with danger mm-hmm. from early on you know like i i know that for myself 
in this desecreting of my sexuality that you alluded to, you know, I like so many grew up in a household where sex was not spoken of, it's a secret. And so any dimension of myself as a sexual being um, was something that I had no context for or framework for. And my relationship to my sexuality um, was fear-based. So I spent the greater part of my adult life always kind of in strategic sexual dynamics with men, especially male colleagues, where I would secure enough of their gaze, their sexualized gaze that I felt in control of the dynamic because I assumed and presumed that it would be there mm-hmm. because their fundamental, their sexuality was a fundamental threat to me. Um, and then I would manipulate that as I needed, you know, to get what I wanted. And later in my life and because of, you know, my relationships, I learned to come into control of my sexual energy and seal up all the leaks. Um, But I still was in that place that you're describing, which was more of an addictive relationship and a conflict-based, attention-based relationship to my own sexuality, where I would have thought, like, I always thought actually, like, I need to have sex every day, every day. Like, I require, this is part of my needs, like, I require this. (laughs) And you know, now I'm newly single and well, several months and I would have thought I would have died, you know, not having had sex for several months. I literally thought like, how is that even, how do people walk around (laughs) in life, you know, that sexually unsatisfied? Um, And of course, you know, my process has catapulted me into this experience of my own, you know, um, non-local sexuality where I now have a relationship to my erotic energy where it's like ever present all day and it doesn't require I mean trust me I would love to have great sex again but it does (laughs) not require you know the actual um like securing it through you know the the means that I thought that it did before Mm -hmm. and my sense is that at the root of that relationship to sexuality that I had that was very almost like, I don't know, three-dimensional um, and relational rather than intrinsic to my beingness, this reclamation of my animal beingness um, that was I was put in conflict with as a child. Um, you know, my, my sense is that it's given me the opportunity to visit with this fear um, of punishment that we've talked about that was coupled with my sexuality. That was totally unconscious and driving a lot of my dynamics with men, but also men of the world, including masculine structures like the government, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, which was the fear that I would be killed. You know, the fear, Jordan Peterson says that, you know, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. And I subscribe to that, you know, wholeheartedly yeah. because I think that until I looked at that fear um, and and felt that I had the opportunity to engage it through different dynamics in my you know personal life, where I felt literally mortally threatened, um, which was somehow not totally rational, but it was a real feeling, and I could interact with how long that part of me had been holding that very real feel. Fe- fear rather, and all of these parts that were recruited to help make sure that that part didn't have to fully experience that ever again, you know? That's 
describes my entire life, right? Like it's, it's built on this one fragmentation experience of like, you know, where where my sexuality and my sexual energy as a part of my vital force um, was paired with this fear of moral punishment. And whether you want to draw from, you know, edible complexes or, or otherwise, I think it's very real. And so the reclamation process, by definition, I think requires that we harmonize with our sensuality, as mm -hmm. you were describing, that we come into union with um, the the pleasure and bliss technology that is this entire body. You know, that's what, you know, Alan Watts would talk about how you don't dance to get across the room or listen to a song to get to the end of it. You know, this is how we come into contact with our beingness is to engage in the sensual and what could be described as this greater definition of sexuality that is, of course, co-opted and leveraged through, you know, sort of like the genital expression of it and pornography and dominant culture. Um, it's, it's like that, you know, it's the inversion, like yet again. Mm. Well, which comes from the repression and the exile mm -hmm. of our erotic life, exiling the entirety of our eroticism into the sexual, and then making that shameful so it becomes transgressive sexuality that because of the shame that's there we know that it's wrong so we crave that thing that's yeah. wrong and so it creates this whole pathology that's not i don't want to pathologize the pathology but it becomes this becomes this aspect where we've exiled the entire erotic life into this one condensation and then so for someone which i'm curious about someone like yourself and my wife experiences the same thing you know she's doing a, a visual album which mm -hmm. is a celebration of the liberation of the feminine yes. sexuality a reclamation that this is mine and i claim it for me right the <clears throat> generally applauded but also targeted and her posts have been removed mm -hmm. and like people have come after her for that for that expression and because they're lumping it into a whole bunch of other different categories and not actually seeing what it really is. And I imagine that for you, when you post uh, you know, one of your pole dancing videos or, or something like that, like you're exposing yourself mm. to actually the thing that originally you were afraid of, mm -hmm. which is reprimand mm -hmm. for this free expression of something that is innate to right. all of us. So in a way you've alchemized that fear by facing it. Right. Right. You know? And somebody made a joke, you know, that my, cause I'm, I've just started, I'm an amateur, so there's not <laughs> compared to Vailana's uh, artistry. <laughs> there is, I don't know if it's in the same world, but nonetheless, somebody made the joke like that. My pole dancing videos are like far more threatening to, you know, the agenda and the establishment than my anti-pharmaceutical activism. And, you know, you could think oh, that that makes no sense except that it it does when you look through the lens of the possibility that the reclamation of eros is the way out of this it mm -hmm. is this mm -hmm. path that is not apparent in the polarities right of these these two camps who have totally irreconcilable worldviews on what it is to be a human being right do we need to transcend the inherent limitations of you know, the human body with, you know, the gift of technology and associated control-based control interventions, or, you know, is, is the body infinitely wise? Does it make no mistakes? And are we here to experience our innate vitalism? Mm -hmm. Though never the two shall meet, right? Like those two worldviews 
I remember early on in um, the pandemic, I was invited to dinner um, with, by some friends who, this was early on, Miami was in lockdown and they lived a couple hours north in this beautiful place on the beach. And the dude was like, you know, we're so excited to see you. And just so you know, like we're, we're doing the whole social distancing thing. So we're just going to like set the table that way. And I'm just like, not going to hug you, but it's like totally cool. Like otherwise. And I was like, I'm not coming then, you know, like I'm not coming. Like that offends my sensibilities, my humanity, my value system to interact with a human being I care about in such a dehumanizing way. I'm not doing it. It's not worth it. So, and that got me thinking like, how are these worlds, if he can't be in a room with my body under circumstances that work for me, then we can't be in a room together. And isn't that the metaphor, you know, of this divide and conquer strategy is that it will become impossible for us to share the room of this uh, plane together, you know? And what is this complementarity that I know exists in all polarities, right? There is a way where polarities come into coherent, you know, complementarity where they serve each other in a non-dominant fashion, right? Like each takes their terrain and they dance and play. And I don't see how that could emerge from this until I started to watch my own experience and to understand that, you know, as somebody who otherwise would have like fought the man, you know, becoming the tyrant I'm fighting is that Nietzsche quote is always like, you know, you become the monster. I can't tell you how many activists I know who literally not only are perpetuating exactly what they claim to be resolving, but they, they are embodying the same characteristics. Fighting against discrimination with discrimination. Exactly. And so yeah. if that's not the way, then what am I supposed to do? Like watch Netflix and, you know, sit at home in my PJs? Or is there some other path, you know, where my personal uh, individuation process somehow contributes to the the collective organization of humanity around a totally different value system that is not predicated on this, this inner conflict that we then project and experience as outer struggle and warfare and then recruit a medical system that is based on anti-everything, anti-hypertensives, antibiotics, antidepressants. And we're just in that struggle of um, war that you could argue is a play, you know, that we elect into, but we also have other options and how do we access those? And that's where this integration and reclamation of eros as uh, the fundamental expression of the divine through the human body seems to me like not much else I should be focusing on in my life right now. It is it is quite possibly the 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 core the core knot at the, like the central knot where so many things are tangled. Yeah. And starting to as I've started to see how that flow of life force has been denied and repressed and sequestered and exiled in all of these different ways and even see amongst friends and, and different people where I can see how that flow has is blocked in a certain area. And then I see the ways that they're going about seeking either Eros, genuine, you know, or pseudo Eros, which is the quick hit of some mm-hmm. drug or some thing that's giving you some feeling that's approximating Eros, but it isn't it because it'll never satiate you mm-hmm. and it always leaves you more empty and craving more. And that's the that's the big difference between both of them. But if we can actually get back to that inner state of vitality, 
which again is not exiled to the sexual. Like we have, right. it has to be broadened in that entire horizon. I think I really do agree with you. Like this could be, this could be the place to really the place where we have to focus our attention. This is the most upstream, upstream contraction, and it is woven into our sexuality. So this reclamation of our sexuality, not just in <clears throat> sex positive, everybody have sex. It's like sex, as as Mark Gaffney says, sex erotic, which mm-hmm. is like, this is a way to model the erotic. And let's use this to learn about how to live an erotic life and model it and experience it, but but just model the way that we live by what we learn through this amazing gift that we all have, which is our our sexual expression. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's the system itself and the, the immune system of that system is going to attack those who mm-hmm. are actually touching that thing, mm-hmm. which crumbles so many of the buildings that have been built on a foundation, a different foundation, a different belief system, different establishments and complexes. I mean, you can look at you can look at the biography of of Hitler and see where his constriction and repression of eros you know created the created the monster in many ways and you could i no one knows for sure but you can imagine that some loving girlfriend <laughs> at some time who the right whatever, concubine yeah. yeah or yeah or the or a love temple like they used to have in ancient civilizations where you could go and even if you had whatever strange genital condition that he had i'm not quite up on that but whatever like went hooked to the right or did something weird and was not very big i don't know that's the, that's the, that's the rumor that that's around there but ultimately like that thing and that shame and that and that and then he had to come out with his desire for power which is like pseudo eros in that way and control and that, that influence and it just it created all of these things and we have our own inner little tyrant Yes, that can develop from the repression of what is this natural flow of energy that that coiling serpent that's trying to emerge and experience and taste life in all of its in all of its magnificence if we can get back to that i think that's incredibly powerful i mean i'm thinking of a friend right now who's deeply wise you know incredibly incredibly wise and i really look up to him and he's made intense efforts intense efforts to do all of the all of the different healing modalities that are available from ozonation of his blood to fasting to psychedelic medicine interventions to all of these things but fundamentally his ability to access eros Mm -hmm. you know through the physical body in particular i think intellectually He's like able to access it through deep conversation and contemplation. There's many ways, many faces of this. But his ability to feel it physically is in my just whatever casual observation might be the thing, which is why all of these other great treatments that are always helpful, all the IVs and all that, it's all it's all good. But it's yeah. not, it's not quite getting to the root, which is this feeling of being making love to the world which can yeah. heal it all. And there's um at least in my experience this surprising step uh in the reclamation process that seems to be required which is a willingness to really hold that 
experience of yourself as bad and wrong um, because of how it's been coupled with sexuality. That it's like almost like you can't get one without the other until you realize that you have, as you said, that inner sadist, that inner tyrant. And mm -hmm. for me, it's been, right, because I told you what I'm working on, which is to recognize when I choose to let something go that I don't need anything. I don't need the system, the person to be bad and wrong for me to simply make the choice to take my energy elsewhere, right? That is my, like, I want to be spiritually sovereign impulse, right? And fundamentally, I will, that part of me can't own that I actually want to punish those people for hurting me or that mm -hmm. I actually want horrible things to happen to them and the schadenfreude mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. the rest of it, right? And there is this part of me, like I call it like the wicked part of me, that is is like my inner dom, right? Like it's my inner like, like predator, you know? And she she wants to laugh at men and shame them and tell them what silly boys they are. And you know, she wants to like impose her aggressive impulse, which again, through that Jordan Peterson model is to laugh it's it's the Kali, right? It mm -hmm. is like, you know, to behead, but emotionally, psychically, even spiritually, um, as the counterbalance to the fact that like, you could put your hands around my neck and I'll be done in, you know, a minute. Um, if I don't own that, that is in me because I'm so invested in my spiritual bypass practice of being, you know, always my, you said that slippery ego, like always um, finding a way to be the good person even through my spiritual ego. If I don't own that that part is in there, then I can't access that play, the conscious play, right? In, whether it's through BDS, BDSM or whatever, you know, figurative ways that I, you know, engage energetically with the world, to not own that part is to never fully integrate that flow of vital force energy into my being. And it's hard because I don't want to be that person who wants bad things to happen to others i'm not that person you know well you are i am and we, all, and we all are right you know and that's that's the thing like again it goes back to what we were saying like yeah tatvama see i am that too <laughs> you know like yes. we all have that there's an interesting you mentioned the the bdsm power exchange mm -hmm. world and there is so much power spiritual growth potential in that in that in that world in that realm that people don't look now you can look at the studies in the aggregate and you see the people who engage in that practice are generally happier mm -hmm. more like more you know I, I wrote about all the studies in my book on the day actually there's a whole host of like studies that they've done on people who engage in them and they're actually kinder more compassionate mm -hmm. more even even healed with their emotions and they're, they're it's like their their whole system is settled in a way yeah. even though their practices yeah. themselves you're like oh, oh yeah. i can't believe it what is what are they <laughs> exactly. doing but what i what i can feel happening in that space is you're actually accessing different aspects of your divine cravings mm -hmm. and so in the dom position you have somebody who is submitting themselves entirely to you it's right? actually the one in control right right but it's a paradox it is a paradox yeah. because but let's explain how that how that happens right that happens because they give you 
Yeah. If you're the dom, they give the dom their entirety of their, the entirety of their surrender. And in that receipt of absolute power over another person, that absolute power mimics our divine craving, the craving to be in our divinity, which is a place of absolute power. And so in the receipt of absolute power, it actually calls forth the other attributes of the divine while satiating our desire to feel what that absolute power is. So we don't have to go try and perpetrate this out on the world. Exactly. We've received it. We've quenched it. Exactly. We've quenched this desire, satiated it. And then in that flow, then we realize, oh, all of the other divine qualities start to come online. The deep compassion, the tenderness. You know, like anybody who's in the world understands that a big part of it is the coming together and the sweetness, the sweet gentleness that comes on the other side of this thing because it calls forth like, I've felt what absolute power feels like and now I am so full of love and acceptance and like radical compassion. So that's on the, on the dom side. And then on the submissive side, you get to surrender completely to what is a divine power the absolute surrender and the freedom the freedom to completely let go of everything is another aspect of how we orient to the divine and then that satiates this radical trust and mm -hmm. faith and belief in the world that you can completely surrender and even if it's hard god is going to take care of you you know yeah and so if you're doing it right with that not right i don't want to say right or wrong but if you're doing it with that yeah. conscious intention it can be this magical process that's a deep deep portal that can really open up a lot of these different things and i think that's why a lot of people are inherently inherently drawn to it but mm -hmm. i don't think they understand like what its potential is you know just like sex itself a lot of people drawn to it but don't understand what the potential of any type of sexuality is that union that can give you a taste of the union of the one with the many the one with the all you with the divine or you with the one so it's right. it's a such a it's such an interesting world that i think doesn't get enough credit for what it's capable of people just stop it's like oh it's kinky it's freaky sure yes and it, there's like there's potential there more than potential i think if you you live consciously in command of those kinds of polarity play dynamics let's say in your personal life in your sexual life you will recognize when those same dynamics are playing out on the world stage right yeah. you will recognize oh i'm being asked to be compliant obedient and to submit potentially against my will and you'll also remember that consent is the key to these dynamics and trust right and and do i consent and is this uh a dom that i trust right and you might come to the conclusion as i have you know that that no and so i'm just not going to play right i'm not going to play there right because those dynamics you know that's not the partner that works for me and i'm going to take my energy dynamics elsewhere and i do believe that that's why there's no such thing as you know, I believe this is a benevolent universe and it is consent-based and all of the atrocities and all of the horrific things that are happening in the world and all of the ways that we would otherwise seem helplessly victimized. There were micro consents, consents um, that were offered along the way. Um, 
And, you know, that's a lot of what I started to look at in my own life, you know, at the beginning of this process a couple of two years ago, where I was looking at, okay, if this system does not serve my values, if I believe, for example, that the body is inherently wise and that, you know, it never makes mistakes, and that's my value system is that the body itself, the, the tissues themselves are sacred. Um, the system doesn't doesn't happen to agree, right? Like the system mm. doesn't happen to represent my values. And so where are the ways in which I am offering micro consent, right? Through my smartphone, through shopping at Whole Foods, you know, through even educating my children in Rockefeller-based system, through, you know, the financial participation that I have in, you know, big banking cartels and whatever, whatever. I looked at the incoherence that could underpin my conscious perception of being victimized by this system yeah. when the truth is that I was offering consent. And so I could choose to offer that consent and that's fine. But then I've laid bare something that otherwise would have been an unconscious play of those dynamics. And again, ultimately a longing to revisit with whatever the pain, fear, distress, rage, shame is of that victim experience, right? Like mm -hmm. whatever I get out of it. And whenever I'm ready, you know, I will step into my creatrix consciousness where I focus not on what I don't like about what's happening in the world, um, but focus on what it is that I want to offer my energy to. What do I want to make? What do I want to, I want to express? How do I say yes to my own energy, to my own vital force consistently yeah. so that I live in a world that says yes to me and it begins with me. And that's a lot of what I've what I've learned um, around inner polarities is like what it's taken for me to become my own masculine container. Um, and I do think that's a lot of what I offered now looking back uh, in my private practice was like I was almost like this, this father figure, <laughs> you know, for mm -hmm. my patients, like um, inviting them to experience and express and move those old energies, sometimes that were suppressed and medicated for three decades uh, so that they could know they were in a safe space to do that. And yeah. um, that inner polarity, you know, cause I always thought, well, I, I need a, a man to offer me that container so that I can fully, you know, let go and fully surrender and come into that submissive energy. Um, and I think that any good sub, you know, has an experience of their own um, space holding, totally approving, sure. totally present, devotional, like I am here no matter what, you can rely on this. Um, you can rely on me not to abandon post and go get lost in the fray of like distraction. No, I am here. And that inner masculine I, I could never live in a world where I experience that on the outside until and if I can offer that to yeah. myself on the inside. Yeah, we are, we're a microcosm of the everything. Yeah, so like we can cultivate all of these different things and to be either play any of these roles, we have to know what it's like. Yes. You know, we have to know what that, what that feeling is to actually understand it, to identify it when it's out of alignment, when it's being played out in all of these different ways. I think it's you know you, you mentioned the the body not making mistakes and and it, I just want to like clarify that for some people because everything that the body is doing is an attempt at being adaptive for mm -hmm. sure and that's why it's not a mistake. However, let's say you do slam a 
Fanta Cola or whatever, or a soda or whatever, packed with liquid sugar, an unusual experience that our body is not equipped for. Totally. That sugar is entering our bloodstream so fast that the body's like, fuck, exactly. I'm going to release a lot of insulin because exactly. I don't know when the hell this is going to stop. And it releases too much. Mm-hmm. typically right like so you go into that hypoglycemic state because the body kind of overcorrected for that doesn't mean the body's making a mistake it just doesn't know exactly like because or of the conditions it generated the conditions for associated symptomatology that would invite you to say huh i wonder if what i just did is maybe not a match uh, uh-huh. you know because right if it did it correctly and the perfect amount of insulin just coasted you into a glucose of 72 you know, then you just go on with your day, never invited to explore and examine how you are self-abusing because we are our own self-abusers, right? In the choices that we make, we self-violate, we self-betray. And so those symptoms, in my experience anyway, are always the invitation to turn towards, examine, explore, and better understand how we are out of alignment because your alignment is, is different. And that's why any one size fits all, you know, healing modalities, probably not going to be the way, right? Because my inner incoherence, right? Like I still order on Amazon. In my value system, that is incoherent. Mm. So every time I do it, there's a rumble and a tension inside that eventually I'm going to experience on the outside, you know? Uh, And that may not be true for you, in which case you keep doing you, right? But it's that inner conflict that then gets exposed to us through our choices. Mm. And that's our invitation, you know? Yeah, I'm gonna correct. (laughs) This sounds like my cat when I bring him in the car. (laughs) They are beautiful cats. Oh my God, incredible, so true. uh, Talking to Matias, cats in, so I don't know, we might as well just keep this in the podcast. We had a brief interlude, an interruption (laughs) with our cat who decided that this was the best place he could possibly be look at my dress and his fur it's like i know meant to it be. is very much like that uh matthias de stefano who remembers and you can listen to my podcast to get the full story but he remembers lives lived in different civilizations and one of the civilizations was precursor to ancient egypt it's a place called chem and the cats which were the deities you know ubasti bastet all of these different cat deities they were the only ones that were allowed in the temples because in the temples there was wild shit going on, astral astral things, beings, and different experiences like you would see in an ayahuasca ceremony, basically. But it was happening frequently. But the cats were the only only creatures that would not be, they could see, they could see across the veil. And I think a lot of animals can sense when the energy yeah. shifts and they're very subtly perceptive in that way. But cats would just look at the wildest shit going on and just not be afraid and just be like hmm like there's something like very powerful about that cat energy it's mm-hmm. why the jaguar is so mm-hmm. sacred in in the amazon because it just it looks at the at the shadows of the darkness and is like well i'm a fucking cat <laughs> you know like i don't give a shit you know so they were always welcome in the temple as like and revered for their ability to stare into the abyss of something scary and just like lick their paw. Exactly. Like, like here I am. Yeah. yeah. And there's something like very potent. I think that's why we're drawn to that mm. is we're scared. Mm-hmm. We're scared. You know, we're, we're really 
fundamentally there's so much fear and to liberate ourselves from that fear is what is required for us to really be free like that's freedom is like the other side of the intensity of the fear that we feel and when we're afraid i mean we saw what how society was controlled by fear over the last few years right like people would be willing to do anything people would not see their friends because of their fear or not see yeah and i understand like there's certain conditions where that makes sense like if you're in the throes of covid you know like don't invite so and so over and share tea with them or something like there is like some that's some, another some like logical <laughs> things that like all right I, you know yeah and of course you can take the cowan approach and some other things but nonetheless i like, walk the cowan path there there is the with audacity yeah yeah there is <laughs> there is some, i'm not denying sensibility in this but the point being that in the intensification of fear we're willing to surrender willing to surrender our sovereignty and our freedom and our joy and the things that we love most about life i'm saying this in the aggregate some of us were never willing to do that i would imagine that you were one of those people who were never willing and in that as well i was also not willing to surrender these things yeah i had i had you know life changed and i accepted the changes that were there and some of the other things but i didn't stop the things that i knew were just invaluable to my life because i was i wasn't going to allow fear to dictate you know how i lived the entirety of my life and of course you get a lot of criticism for that Mm -hmm. you know but for those of us who decided that we weren't going to abide by that fear that act of courage then made us more courageous in certain ways and then brought us into community with other people of of that similar courage and value system so it's been both the challenge and the intensification of the liberation by the facing of it you know so you either receive it and just get more afraid or you face it and have the opportunity to transcend it that seems to be like the fundamental lesson about fear it's like approve of it understand that it had a very essential role Mm -hmm. uh, and that you can redelegate you know to that part another you know, sort of very important uh, title in your life. You know, I know for me, I had to have experiences, lived experiences that flew in the face of my pre-existing belief system in order to recognize that my fear no longer had a place. Like, you know, the way that I evolved my understanding of mental illness, of cancer, of heart disease of contagion was to either through my personal embodied experience or through patients to see that it wasn't, I couldn't hold the same framework and also have this outlier exist. And that's of course how science is supposed, it's a, it's not a destination, it's a process of exploring always the re-interrogation uh, of theories when there is an outlier, right? There, there cannot be a single uh, inconsistent variable and the theories still stand. And of course, in the age of scientism and you know dogmatism, we understand that science is not a, a tool for inquiry. It's a geopolitical control mm-hmm. strategy. And it's, a, you know, as Foucault said, it's a totally different lens that you can look through. But at its in its purest 
stayed. It's an exploration of nature of the natural world and honoring of of asking questions. Yeah. And so I started to ask questions when I saw that there were those inconsistencies and I couldn't, could no longer, they call it cognitive dissonance, right? Like that's the beginning of change and growth and transformation is to have that like tense wobble. um, And you can either collapse into denial, which of course we all do when we're not ready, uh, to, for that identity plasticity and that expansion to come into our lives. Uh, or you can tolerate uncertainty. I think it's called negative capability, right? You, untol- you tolerate uncertainty and paradox and complexity. You essentially enter into that melting stage of the chrysalis, right? Where everything seems to be dying and you feel often um, that confusion can feel like you're dying. And instead of, you know, jumping in to fix it, you hold the faith that the imaginal cells will organize and the butterfly will take shape and that you just move through that liminal space. Uh, but that, it's a, it's a tall order. I mean, but every inquiry, and I question everything at this point, everything I've ever paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to be indoctrinated <laughs> around, I have come to, to question. And, now it's fun, you know, now it's yeah, sure. exciting. Um, but in the beginning it was, it was world decimating. It was identity fracturing to let go of not only the ideas, but what I was getting out of that victim consciousness, right? How I was meeting my needs through the random mutation theory of cancer, through the germ theory of infectious disease, through the cholesterol theory of heart disease, you know, I was participating in a field that was meeting the needs of my inner victim indirectly through these belief systems about the body. And so when I moved into a space where I align with my body and I understand that it's always me showing me about me, there's no other entity in the room, it's Mm. all me there's actually nothing to be afraid of. Like I don't use pharmaceuticals in my household because they're not relevant. It's like literally not relevant to my belief system to like seek to make something stop, right? It's like, it's like holding my head underwater and being like, oh my God, why am I drowning? You know, like I'm the one <laughs> holding my head. Yeah. Like why, you know, am I gonna like send in, you know, the Coast Guard or whatever? Like it's me, it's me. And there's nothing to be afraid of. And of course, that requires that we, again, look at not only our fear of death and what that means, but also our fear of being more fully alive. I know that's been a way bigger one for me recently. It's just like, can I hold so much aliveness in my body that isn't contracted through that victim story? Because if you think about anything like incredible that's happened and that expansion you feel, like how long have you been able to hold it in your body? Like- I don't know, a couple hours, maybe a couple days. And at least I'll speak for myself. Like I will literally like drum up conflict or focus on something that bothers me or like come up with some reason to get into that familiar energy of contraction so that my nervous system can get the memo that we're in territory that is not associated with that expansion of the child's divine energy, you know, that is ultimately tampened down by our highly conditioned parents. Um, you know, to recognize I'm an adult now. Like I can, I can do all these, I can handle all these things, but it's, it requires that I be willing to 
move beyond the pale into aliveness, um, which is scary as hell. <laughs> it's scary because of we're intensely afraid of contrast. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we're so afraid of. It's like, <clears throat> why are you afraid to love? It's the yeah. craziest thing. You're afraid to love. What, what do you even mean you're afraid yeah. to love? It's the best feeling on the planet. You're afraid to love. It's crazy, but it's so common, right? Like we all agree love is the best feeling ever, but so many of us are afraid to. Well, why? It's because we've loved and then we've had our legs cut out mm -hmm. from under us, you know? All of a sudden the love was gone and the pain of the contrast, mm -hmm. you know, was something that now we just don't even want to step into it. So if we love life, and then something bad happens, well then the contrast. But that is no way to live. There's no way to live, to be denying yourself all of the good just to soften the blow of the contrast. And I think what we need to realize is that, yeah, well, we can handle it. It's just this faith, like, okay, I get broken up with, I get cheated on. You know what? Like. I can handle it. Mm. I also have a community that'll help me handle it. I have the processes. I know how to grieve. I know how to go down to the river and wail and cry and express and emote and do and breathe and journal and write poetry. Mm. And I'll make it through this fucking thing and I'll get back in there and I'll love again and I'll live this thing. But if we're not mindful that we're constantly trying to protect ourselves from the slap of that contrast, yeah. then yeah. we won't step into the river of ecstasy that is available in this life and we're it's adaptive to try to prevent us from from that contrast because at that point we're vulnerable i suppose to some other conditions but it's also denying us the the great joy that we have at our fingertips it's like this is the this is the courage of the poet in a way is to feel everything and also know that you can transmute this in some way and then just say all right you know, all right, well, I'm gonna love and either I'm gonna either, number one, love for its own sake, lishma for its own sake, mm -hmm. as, the, as the Hebrew word is, like do it for its own sake, because it's amazing. And if it goes away, it's another note and another key, and I'll express that, even if it doesn't come out in words that are poetry, it can come out in a, the way I move and cry and breathe and write, and we all have our ways to do it, and, and that's beautiful too. So fuck it. You yeah, know, like, let's go. I know. I think, I think it requires. Maybe it's part of that initiation, but it requires for many of us that there is an experience played out in the three dimensions, often in like a cardinal relationship, where you finally give up hope that you're ever going to get the love that you wanted, you know, from your parents. Ever, mm. like it's never coming it's never coming yeah. from the outside ever you know and that talk about grief i mean i know certainly like what i've gone through like in the past couple of months like just experiencing like weeks and weeks of grief around like what must be my child self like just releasing that longing like forever and of course, what comes in the the vacuum of that, the void of that is exactly the love, right? Yeah. It is exactly the love that you imagine is going to come from these parentified figures 
on the outside, you know, in all of those experiences of upset and resentment and disappointment was that secret hope, that projection onto a person that they never consented to, that they could finally be that daddy or mommy, you know, and otherwise you, we would experience each other as we are. There would be no such thing as judgment or disappointment or resentment because we would always be seeing people exactly as they they are, which we're not, as you said, you know, Mm. we're experiencing our projections and parentification and the play of that betrayal and all of these dynamics, you know? And so when you finally get to that moment in your life where you almost like give up and grieve, something shifts where it's like, it was like all here. It was all already here. And now I just get to give it, you know, now I'm like a cup overflowing instead of like trying to find the perfect quanta, you know, of of liquid from the perfect person. And, you know, again, experiencing that play of suffering and and struggle. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to touch back on, and I can think of it in my own life, is this idea of inconsistencies with my belief system, Mm. you know, and ways in which I'm reifying certain constructs that I still do. And I just kind of like, just kind of like close my eyes for a minute and just do it anyways. Mm. You know, like one of these things is, um, I used to get sick a lot, not terribly, but like colds, like fucking constantly. Fortunately, that doesn't really happen anymore. But during that period, I don't, I really don't like getting sick, not from the physical discomfort, but from the having to stop all of my different engagements and all of the things that I was doing. It's just a massive disruptor of everything that I want to do. Come and on, accomplish. body. Yeah, 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 <laughs> for sure. So I got into like, pretty you know not howie mandel level but like pretty frequent hand washing and and i realized that every time i'm doing that like i'm just basically lathering my hands with with fear Mm -hmm. in a way yeah okay yes they're getting clean and presumably sometimes they are dirty but nonetheless like i'm taking an action that's that's just strengthening this fear body that's within me and also like i still have different things that help me sleep you know and different things that different tool and i'm like but i still at the same time my belief is that the body is absolutely capable of miracle on miracle on miracle and then it'll come around 1 p.m 1 a.m and i'm not sleepy yet and i'll be like yeah i'll take this pharmaceutical Mm. you know and i just kind of like shudder a little bit and like Mm. worry about this another time you know and and so it's just these subtle ways that i i'm not living and you mentioned it with amazon you know like i haven't gotten to that level of consistency with my worldview where that actually troubles me you know at this point right but but for me i know there are some things that actually do and it's not that i disagree that there's problems with amazon or whatever it's just not high enough on my so list for me to even like particular fuck with to it. my yeah. <laughs> situation yeah yeah so but there's this there's this yearning in a way mm. there's this like there's this yearning in a way to to be consistent yeah. to be really and it's also it's also with my diet right like i want to eat only organic produce only and 
also animals that lived a life that approximates what a real living experience for that animal is. So chickens that were free to cruise around and smash bugs and do what chickens do, cows that were free to roam and eat the grass and bison that were roaming the plains or deer that you know were out in the field. That to me feels like that's consistent with my mm-hmm. spiritual beliefs and my love, my love for the world and my love for my own body. But uh, I'm a little hungry and mm-hmm. we're out at this restaurant and uh, fuck it, I'm, I'm not gonna ask them where the this animal's though. from. From It's just like, <laughs> ugh. And I just do it anyways and I like block it out. But I think I'm potentially underestimating the cost, Mm-mm. the cost of the inconsistency where I'm telling myself that, you don't really believe this. If you did, you wouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. So you don't really believe this. So I'm like almost gaslighting myself mm, with yeah. my own actions in a way. Yeah, I think you're onto something and I'll take it from an angle related to what we've been talking about, um, which is how can erotic energies resolve this schism? Because you're you're sensing, you wouldn't be talking about it if there weren't parts of you in conflict. Yeah. Um, and then there's additional ones that are like, judging and shaming and holding different beliefs and uh, prioritizing different things. I remember I first encountered this when I started to think about what it is for my patients, like after they decided to come off of medications of all kinds, birth control pills and statins and, um, you know, thyroid hormone and uh, psychotropics, like they still- Just real quick, are statins just completely ridiculous? Are they like, in your opinion- is that well? I had a, a women's health practice, and there isn't a single study, not one, that could validate the efficacy or even indication relative to the adverse effects of that medication class for women. Period. So there was no reason, yeah. based on the science. Um, and again, once you get into the belief field, where you know, like, what is actually the problem here? Right? What is the why? What right. is the message? it becomes irrelevant. So I used to get really into like informed consent and here's all the data about, I have reams of blogs on my site about adverse effects, you know, of medications because I was never told about this. So I knew I wasn't able to provide informed consent to my patients. And that felt like really messed up because I paid attention, you know, in my training. And so, yeah, it's kind of the same story I found for every single class of pharmaceuticals. It's the same, um, Again, like it's reflecting the consciousness of the person who would participate in a way that is consistent and coherent and fine. Uh, there's there's not even a place for judgment because it's all resonant if it's meant to be. Same reason I went to medical school at the time that I did and I would never go now. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ends up happening is these medications, they perpetuate exactly that which they purport to resolve across the board, all of them. They perpetuate the problems and propagate new problems. Like in the antidepressant realm, for example, like antidepressants um, drive something called tardive dysphoria, which is basically like chronic depression. It's the medical term for chronic depression. Um, One in 23, according to a Yale study, one in 23 people who started antidepressant are then diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So now they're spinning off new diagnoses and new problems and, you know, Robert Whitaker, who wrote the book that was the game changer for me, Anatomy of an Epidemic, 
he demonstrated with pretty robust data that these medications are responsible for what we call chronic mental illness. The medications are responsible mm -hmm. because when you compare to naturalistic data, you know, where people are either taken off medications or never started, they do better. Right. Yeah, so they go in a they go in a wave. They go in a right. A and so you could cycle. say, oh, bad pharma, how are they doing this to people? You know, or you can say that it's consistent with the person's desire, unconscious, of course, to remain in that pattern of struggle. There's something that they're getting out of it until they're ready not to be. And I mean, I don't know about you, but every single experience of growth that I've had, I was not ready the second before I was ready. And right. no one could have coerced that. No one could have even inspired it. There was, there's no possibility. So what I would say is, if you look at these inner polarities we're talking about, right? Like that, that masculine containment and that, you know, feminine flow and expression and movement and dynamism. Um, how would you, if your body was your feminine which it is object of desire, right? Yeah, we're all. This is the woman. Right? This is the goddess. If it was, it's part of the earth. Like, how, well, how, what are we? What are we? Are we pretending that it's because I have a dick, suddenly I'm not part of <laughs> exactly. the mother? Get exactly. out of here! Exactly. Get out of here! This is the goddess. Exactly. So, if you are, let's say, like I play a game with myself where you know, now that I'm I'm not having sex at this moment, as we've discussed, you know, I, I play this game where I imagine like this, like incredible lover's eyes on me, like at all times, like everything I, everywhere I'm moving, like I just feel his, his gaze like on me, right? It changes my experience. It like brings something forth in my body that I like, right? So that's the activation of that non-local sexuality that that has given me and offered me an experience of almost like decoupling, like fucking from Eros and from my vital force, right? So what if you were to offer that gaze like to your own body, right? To your own inner experience of feeling states. Like you wouldn't be like, stop it, stop doing that. Like, mm -hmm. would you talk to Vailana that way? Like, stop doing mm -hmm. that, lose some weight. Like, you're so annoying. Like come on, I told you, get in bed, you know, whatever. Like there is um, there is a parentified dynamic. Like you're like the bad parent, right? Like this shitty parent who's like yelling at, scolding, shaming, controlling your own body's experience when you could be like the incredible masculine lover, mm. you know, who is approving of, holding space for, allowing all of it to be welcoming, honoring, like in devotional comportment. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm just putting that out there, you know, like yeah. who lives this way? I don't know anybody who does. However, I, I aspire to that relationship to myself. And that includes, you know, if you're not sleeping and what if like your child, your beloved child or your your love, your beloved, your lover, you know, was in that space of struggle, like would you just be like, go to sleep, you know, slam the pillow on her face and just like mm. hold it there until she does. Like, or would there be this like curiosity? Like, what could this mean for you? Maybe you're, you have a lot of creative energy moving through, you know, like mm -hmm. maybe this, because I dealt with, experienced um, so much of my patients insomnia. That is a cardinal experience of the psychotropic withdrawal process. Insomnia is part of the deal. Um and you could throw whatever supplements and honestly, even pharmaceuticals at it and 
it's futile. It's totally futile. So I got to the place where I was like, what is the message of insomnia? What is insomnia actually about? And there's like a whole reframe that says, you know, that that once it is met with approval and even embrace, you know, like there's something very meaningful in the fact that the body is choosing not to sleep at this time. Everything shifts. Of course, right? Like it's in yeah. the insistence that it should be different, that the struggle is perpetuated, that the need for victim consciousness-oriented tools and interventions, aka pharma, is even relevant. And I'm not saying that tritely because it's not, this is, a, trust me, this was like a, talk about an initiation, you know, insomnia. I mean, I've had patients who went like nine months without sleeping. Goodness. Literally, uh, benzo withdrawal can be that. Um, and right? Doesn't any good initiation process, doesn't any expansion to, how do you know that on the other end of your insomnia isn't like your next level? Just saying. Thank you for that. No, <laughs> thank you for that. I think the, the idea of being under the, the gaze of, of my beloved is like, is really, really powerful mm -hmm. idea. Because I remember when I first got together with Vailana, um, it was like, I was, I was in a state where I was so, I was, and I still am so in love with her mm -hmm. in every way, but there, it was so, I was so in just absolute adoration of her. And like the fact that she would hug me and mm -hmm. kiss me and look at me was like, would bring me to tears in a moment. And it's like, I will be the best man mm. that I can be in the hidden moments, in the in the moments where I'm under her gaze or not, because I'm I'm doing this for her and I will do anything, you know? And I can feel what that felt mm. like. And actually during that period, I got off all sleep mm -hmm. aid, you know, all sleep assistance, all of this stuff, like got off all of that. It also coincided with an interesting time in the world where the whole world was kind of on pause. So it was like a little bit easier for me to kind of mm. step back from different things that I was that I was doing. Um, so I think that's really helpful mm. insight because I can I can imagine that. And and I would love to say that 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 thing with Vailana is still there. And it is. I, I love her deeply and I and I'm and I treasure her. But nonetheless, our familiarity and the and the deepness of our bonds this knowing like she loves me unconditionally and she she's not gonna like not love me in the morning if i take something to help me go to sleep or not mm -hmm. you know she obviously wants me to not mm -hmm. but it's not like we still love each other the same so that doesn't it doesn't really work but I, but if i hypothesized that reality mm -hmm. and made it instead of condensed and exiled into vailana it's into the goddess mm -hmm. which is my own goddess mm -hmm. and the goddess writ large there's immense power in that so i want to thank you for that because it's mm -hmm. a big deal that's a big deal of like how to like look at this like like my beloved is watching mm -hmm. which he she is always so that was like that was really beautiful and then you channel that yeah i mean and i'm a big believer in an order of operations that's been my mo my entire clinical practice is like don't dive in you know the deep end of your psycho-spiritual reorganizational process of your life and healing your family of origin rifts or whatever before you have 
you know, sent your nervous system a signal of safety through your lifestyle choices, you know, the chopping wood and carrying water of your daily decisions. Because, you know, like you said, with sort of like the the sort of like diet wobbles or whatever, it could be that, you know, the insomnia is inviting you to up level, right, through the the discipline and commitment of that masculine container, because that is what discipline is ultimately about is to offer the experience of freedom, right? It's mm-hmm. that paradox. Um, so, you know, I believe, at least for, for my patients, that they they go through this ritualized experience of commitment to lifestyle choices and associated discipline. And then all this clarity comes, you know, when your bloating is resolved and you're sleeping and your energy is stabilized just on the physiologic level you have more resources to then explore like some of the psychodynamic relational things. So obviously ayahuasca is a part of my life, you know, and and you actually walked in, we were watching a draft of a documentary we're gonna be releasing about it. So for dieta, you have to get off Mm -hmm. everything, you know, it's like, and get really, really clean with all that. And I do. Um, The, the, but the interesting part about that is what allows me to do that is I also clear my fucking schedule entirely. Like like for ayahuasca, all I have to do is drink ayahuasca. I can lay in my bed. I can. I mean, I have friends that are there with me or whatever, and I do want to eat at some point. But there's like nothing for me to do. And I think what keeps me trapped in the cycles where it's this well, I got to feed myself because I got this thing where I need to do this. I can't, mm-hmm. I don't, can't skip this meal because I got this thing I got to get to and I don't want to be, you know, the food thing is not that big a deal. Actually, that's just me being a little bit lazy, mm-hmm. you know, because I can skip a meal pretty easily and it doesn't bother, I fasted enough that it doesn't really affect me. So that's not a good example. But the sleeping thing, it's like, oh, well, I got a podcast tomorrow. I can't, can't not sleep tonight. You know, this is important. There's a lot of people that are listening to this and and there's this general feeling like, not now, not mm-hmm. now. And it's also perpetuating this worldview that without my immediate and time sensitive and driving contribution, right. everything will fall apart. Right. And so that there's like a the larger belief system that I'm reifying yes. with my actions That's by right. saying like, the world cannot bear if I stop <laughs> right now. I mean, do you see what's going on? Like I fucking go to sleep and shit's worse. <laughs> You know, and, and, and I, and I love, and I do love, I love being able to offer everything I can. There is a great joy in it. It's not like I'm doing something I don't love, but I think I, I need to untangle this belief that, that somehow it's just, I need to believe that everything will be okay. Everything will be okay. If I just stop, take care of myself, like everything will be okay. And it will. And I, and I, I just, but my, my cells don't believe that. My cells don't right. believe that. Right. Well, it's the it's the reclamation of your omnipotence, right? Because as a child, like let's say you know you're beat by your dad, right? The nature of our enduring connection to our own power, even through the victim model, is such that as a child, I will tell myself, not he's bad, but I am bad. Mm-hmm. I can control this. I can't control him. So, you know, there there grows this sense of omnipotence in, in children. Like we all encounter it. Like I can control 
my experience by attempting to control another's behavior through my experience. And that's where the rescuer and the caregiver comes online. Because if I, if I just do this, be this, you know, hide this, then I will finally get, which of course we never do, then I will finally get that experience of okayness, of love, of approval, of connection to the divine. And we carry into adulthood this sense that we have that much agency and control, which is true, we do. But when it's not conscious, and it's this, now you've made it conscious because you're saying it, right? It's it's this semi-conscious play of like, the world will halt if I do not, <laughs> you know, um, mm-hmm. continue to produce, perform, and to be ultimately, I mean, I'll speak for myself, like this rescuer, um, informing, empowering others, whatever it is. That is not the ultimate reclamation of my power, right? Which is real. Right. The right. ultimate reclamation is to say, whatever is right for me in a given moment is right for the world. And if if what was right for you five minutes before I showed up was to be like, yo, I'm going to take a nap instead. You actually mentioned that. Then <laughs> there's a world sweet. where you doing that actually serves me. I mean, it it didn't happen, so it, it you know, it was it's theoretical but I, w- I wanted this more there okay so then you did you're doing what you want to do yeah. but i do i subscribe to you know following these okay so there's always like a little yes and a little no like it's like a whisper that's what i experience my intuition as it's like it's very uncharged and very quiet and then on top of it is like this whole avalanche of shit right like there's like you know, I'll, I'll get like this little yes, like that's a good idea for you to do that. Have that conversation with your, you know, your mom, your brother, whatever. Say that thing, you know. Um, and then I'll be like, no, I don't have to. Why? Why do I have to do this? Like, blah. and it's all this resistance on top. But underneath is like a little voice. And sometimes it's the opposite where like there there will be like a little teeny no. And then I'll be like, oh, but what does it cost me? And I should just you know, come on, I'll just do it. You know, like maybe it would have been the case about this podcast if you wanted to take a nap instead. Um, If we align with that and we take the risks inherent in like, like being out of character, right? We take, we take on those risks. I choose to believe that that organizes the world in a way that cannot arise from a force-based, performance-based, achievement-based, doing-based relationship to this human experience. So if what is being asked of you is to slow the fuck down, (laughs) then you're going to manifest that because it's what you want through illness because apparently in your rubric that's how you slow down mm, not really i plow i blast through, blast through. <laughs> i blast through and produce so maybe a, a bigger illness you know yeah. whatever right? that's what i have to be careful of like ignore that's the whispers awesome. you have to listen to the screams you know and the the fortunate part is that the work that i'm doing is legitimately nourishing mm-hmm. you know like this conversation in and of itself is legitimately nourishing it's we're in a certain type of eros here, right? Like we're in, we're in radical presence other than cats and toddlers <laughs> and things that have come <laughs> and, and interrupted this, this podcast. But, but nonetheless, the things that I do are things that I love. And yeah. that's my saving grace mm-hmm. is that I'm not pushing to get wealthy or pushing to get famous or pushing to get 
these things. Yeah, sure, those things are those things are fine. I, I appreciate influence and I appreciate wealth and I appreciate all, but it's not the reason. Like I'm getting something really potent out of it. But also it's like, can I trust, like you were saying, that I can live my own best life and that is an, ultimately an act of service to the whole world That's that's significant. It has cosmic significance because that's the world that I want to build. I want to build a world where people radically honor themselves and radically make those choices to to live their own best life. You know, I don't want to build a world of martyrs of right. any of any variety. You know, so it's like living that reality, and uh, and so I think that's it's, there's some deepening clarity about a uh, deepening clarity about the importance of that. And also to know that there's going to be certain times where, yeah, time to giddy up, time to time to like giddy up, cowboy up, put on your hat, slap on your jeans, like rustle the rustle them rustle them cattle. Let's go, you know. That there is that point, and uh, that's okay too. And I love that. I'm built for that, but it's it's just finding that finding that balance, which I think is a greater level of faith. And now the invaluable technique that you gave me of like being under the watchful gaze mm. of of the beloved mm. you know like that's and that's gazing beautiful. upon your own experience with that same exactly yeah. exactly it's it, it, to actually be under that you have to collapse the separation between that and adopt that internally otherwise it won't really work because in the law it's just a figment but if it's if it comes embodied powerful it's a commitment to love, right? Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately the devotional comportment is to find the beauty, the meaning, the design in all of it without exception. Mm. And, you know, there is this competing field of consciousness that is a commitment to separation. Um, and even in that field, uh, we find, you know, this this experience of our own. It's like you were saying, like you, we end up attracting and developing intimacy with that which we're fighting. It's still a form of love. Mm. It's like I, you know, I, I found as I explored activism and the shadows of activism, you know, that there is such an intimacy with the enemy that you develop. You just you caress that enemy with mm. your thoughts, your attention, your heart energy, mm. like all day, every day, when you're in that warring posture, even as an active freedom loving activist, you know? Um, and there is a kind of twisted, perverted love there, you know? It's just not the conscious, intentional, liberated, you know, sacred experience we came here ultimately to reunite with. Yeah. But maybe that contrast is what makes finding that again remembering that so much more delicious you know because yeah. when we do we're like oh i was getting a version of it out of that old way but it's nothing like this you know mm -hmm. it feels like it's kind of like we're in a if life was a video game which i don't mean to go down like this is a simulation because i think that's all nonsense it's yeah. real and a simulation if you want to call it that but i think it tries to reduce this into something that's meaningless and it's not we know that it is meaningful you know but just to use this as an analogy it's like if you were about to play the game you're the you're the avatar you're the character mm -hmm. 
and it's like choose your world yeah. like, like a race car game it's like choose which track you want to be on and or choose this world that you want to go and fight in and be in and we get the chance like all right choose which world you want to be in do you want to be in a world which you're at war with nature at war with your body at war do you want to choose war world okay well here's war world it's level two <laughs> yeah here's war world you can play war world but what about this other world you know where you're in rapture with the beloved always like you want to play that world like yeah that world's pretty good but we got to learn the we got to enter into that world and and adapt to it you know take our character from one world that's built upon this other conflict and separation and then enter into this other world and it's not going to be easy to stay in that new world that we've selected because people all of the culture is going to be trying to drag us into the other one but if we can cultivate enough energy then we can like live in a different parallel reality which then invites if we can anchor it and invites the world to join us in that parallel reality totally and the the only rules of this game as far as i can tell are every time you experience upset enter through it period that's the door that's it and and that is how you rediscover your own agency your own power your parts all of these um aspects of yourself that are otherwise going to be characters that you're in war world against and as you every time now i'm like i really like this analogy but every time you know you you meet that part within right so like i i used to be super judgmental of uh oh my god so many things but like incompetent women Hmm. like a very specific judgment like like kind of like ditzy disorganized like incompetent women and the implication is that if i identify which i do as a competent woman in my shadow is the incompetent kelly right like is that incompetent part of me and i would barely recognize this part. Like I've never experienced myself consciously as incompetent, for example. And so how do I feel triggered by some woman in my life who is, you know, falling down on the job or whatever and recognize that she's holding, because if it doesn't upset me and she is that, whatever. But once it upsets me, that's the invitation. And so how do I recognize that she's holding that part of me? showing it to me and how do i meet with this dimension of myself that i would not otherwise have been conscious of if not for my judgment and get to know her right like what is the part of me that just wants to sleep and do nothing and be a kept woman and you know Mm. make mistakes and doesn't matter and not know things and be stupid and ask for help or whatever it is i don't know but she must be in there or I wouldn't be experiencing her on the outside. And so once that happens, then that's one character in War World who no longer exists. And I ascend, mm-hmm. you know, in this mm-hmm. in this video game into a world that is ultimately like predicated on these, I think, fundamental sacred values, you know, of choice and agency and, and God creative energy that is within each of us. And we get to play together. We get to play together. Like, what is better than that? And we ultimately circle back to that childhood experience of play and divine love that we were, I think, electively um, robbed of 
you know that's mm-hmm. part of this whole like playing hide and seek with ourselves you know and alan watts says you know in one of his lectures he talks about like how if you could like dream whatever dream you wanted yeah you heard yeah, yeah. like you know like the first night you'd like you know, fuck all the hot women Dancing and girls do all the right? all sorts of pleasure. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And by like the seventh night, you'd be like, ah, what I fuck it. Like you you decide, right? And yeah. you'd want to Surprise. play hide and seek with your own power to dream whatever the hell you want to dream. You want to pretend that you don't have that power and so then that you'd you can find yourself right where you are right now. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my God, what a mic drop with him is nothing else that needed to be said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, amazing. I mm-hmm. see why when uh, when we got to spend time at our Fit for Service event, people were coming up to me with tears in their eyes and explaining what an impact you've had on, on their life. Mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, it's a beautiful, encouraging thing. I know many doctors now, actually, that just completely turn the understanding of mm-hmm. what medicine really is on its head. You know, yourself, mm-hmm. Zach Bush, mm-hmm. Dr. Dan Ingle, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dan Stickler, like I have Dr. Craig Conover, mm-hmm. I have all of these. And it's now becoming like, oh, this isn't just an anomaly anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like, there's a field. It's a field, yeah. There's a field that's developing and emerging. And uh, so thank you for holding this, thank you for holding this new reality Mm. that is inviting people, your colleagues and other people to step into. And uh, and also, you know, inviting me into a deepening Mm. of my own world Mm. that that I wanna live, my own more beautiful world Mm. that my heart knows is possible. Mm, So thank you so much. Is there anywhere that uh, you wanna point people to that they can dive in and get more goodies from what Mm. you have to offer well in the censorship shuffle that y'all are getting a nice (laughs) taste of right now um yeah the only place is just my my site kellybroganmd.com only reliable place although i like playing on instagram i was off it for like a year and i'm so shadow banned i think like 10 people get to enjoy my Mm -hmm. illicit content these days but um i've also found it to be talk about like reclaiming parts like a really incredible boot camp you know for meeting my own voices you know because any comments that would otherwise bother me you know like somebody called me a whore today and i was like maybe i am i don't know (laughs) like it's like you know when you can get to the point where it's like i don't know maybe i am okay or if it just doesn't land you know like it's just it's all an opportunity to explore like what's what's up in here so that that drama yeah that drama can end on the outside beautiful thank you so much it's such a pleasure thank you it's an honor really yeah thank you so much everybody i love you guys see you next week Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Kelly Brogan. As I mentioned in the commercials, make sure to check out our new festival in Wyoming, Alpine, Wyoming, July 14 through 17. Some of my favorite artists and speakers on planet Earth. Go to fitforservice.com slash Arcadia with a K.